Big God, Big Salvation is our sermon today from Acts 10, verses 1 to 18. And I would like to pray again with more specifics about this sermon before we preach it. Please pray with me. Gracious and unprejudiced God, we praise you that the kids' chorus is true. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Lord, break into our hearts in these minutes in your word and root out any vestiges of prejudice in any of us. Father, we want the Lord Jesus to be the flag which is flying over the castle of our hearts. Lord, impress your truth on all of our hearts through scripture as found in Acts 10, 1 through 18. And we pray this in your impartial name, Father. Amen. One would think that a Gentile convert to Judaism named Cornelius is the main character of the verses of Acts chapter 10 that we'll be looking at this morning, but we would be wrong to see Cornelius as the main character of these verses. Instead, the Holy Spirit of God himself is the main person at work in the verses historically and in the sanctuary and live stream contemporarily. Now, as we come into Acts chapter 10 and verse 1, the Apostle Peter has a preconception He has a conclusion before having all of the facts. And I'd ask you with me to raise your hand if you've ever jumped to a conclusion. If you ever had a preconception that when you got all the facts, you knew you needed to change. Well, of course, all of us have had preconceptions. All of us have uh, had conclusions that were faulty because we didn't have all the facts. Peter, well, he had a misconception. He had a preconception about the gospel. And he thought that salvation from sin was only for the Jews. Being Jewish, the Lord Jesus and his humanity being Jewish, Peter had the wrong assumption that salvation was only for Jewish believers in Christ. He assumed, Peter did, that by God's design, the church was only going to be Jewish. Of course, that's not right. Put another way, before having all the facts from God that he needed about salvation, Peter figured that the focus of salvation was on the Jewish race. And heaven would only be populated by converted Hebrews, God's chosen people. And God so very graciously sent a vision to Peter to correct his seriously wrong assumptions. And because Peter had much too narrow an understanding of the gospel's beneficiaries, and because Peter at that point couldn't yet read a completed New Testament, Peter got a vision from God to correct his misconception of a Jews-only church. But actually, before Peter got his vision, A Gentile man named Cornelius got his own vision from God first. And as you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 10 and starting at verse 1, let me begin reading. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, 
a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. I'll stop there. Cornelius was a military man. He was a centurion, meaning that he had 100 soldiers under his command. Going on with verse 2, a devout man and one who feared God and all his household and who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Cornelius, what was... He was what was called a proselyte. A proselyte was a Gentile that converted to Judaism. And in this case, Cornelius took on the Jewish faith, except for the rite of circumcision. Going on at verse 3, please. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius... And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? Cornelius was on speaking terms here with the angel of God, according to verse 3, referenced and translated as Lord, lowercase l, Lord with a lowercase l. We could understand that this is the idea of saying, sir. You can also see the same idea in verse 30. So Cornelius referred to the angel of God who came to him in a vision as Sir, going on at verse 5 through 7. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. Verse 7, And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants, a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. Cornelius summoned three men, one of whom was a soldier under his command, and he summoned these three men to go get the apostle Peter. Verse 8, so when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. I love the fact that Cornelius didn't blog after the vision, and he didn't write a book or create a podcast or go on a speaking tour after he got this vision from the angel of the Lord. He simply obeyed the vision. He simply did what the Lord told him to do. He did it immediately, he did it completely, and he did it expectantly. You know how the great hymn goes, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way, no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's exactly what Cornelius did. He trusted and he obeyed. Bless him. You know, individuals often come to me as pastor and ask me questions about God's word. And I I love it because when God's people want to know what God's word has to say for their questions or their circumstances, it's a very healthy and a wonderful thing. And one of the most common questions I've had over 35 years of being a pastor is believers come to me and they ask me, what does God's word say about God's will for my life? Believers want to know what God's will is for their 
individual redeemed lives. And they want to know, what does the Bible have to say about finding God's will for their particular lives? And I love that. And my answer to begin to answer their question is this. When a believer asks me, how can I know God's will for my life? I most always ask them, what would you do with it once you knew it? And I ask you, if you don't yet know God's will for your life, what would you do with God's will for your life if you knew it? If you would think or to answer, well, it would depend, <laughs> it would depend on what it is, that would tell me what I would do with it, then you need to yield and surrender to the Savior as Lord of your life. If you have an answer in your heart, well, I couldn't tell you what I would do with God's will for my life if I knew it, because I'd have to know what it was to see if I liked it and I was willing to do it, then that reveals a need for surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And so God's will for any of us and for each of us is not like an eBay purchase. On eBay, they say, you purchase anything on eBay, you can return it for a full refund within 30 days. God's will for me and God's will for each of you is not like an eBay purchase where he'll reveal his will to us and then we decide whether we like his will and therefore whether we'll do his will. No, no, no. He wants us to present ourselves a living sacrifice, Romans 12, verse 1, holy and acceptable to him, which is our reasonable service of worship. He wants us not to be conformed to this world, Romans 12, verse 2, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Why? So that we can prove what the will of God is for each of us, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. This means, according to Romans 12, verse 2, that whatever God's will is for you individually, it's good, acceptable, and perfect. And so you want to tell the Lord if you never have, I am a blank check. I am a living sacrifice. Show me your will. Transform my thinking. I don't want to be conformed to the world's view of how to live life. And I want to do what already you've planned for me, which already is good, acceptable, and perfect. So when you consider this matter of God's will for your life, and when a pastor like me says, well, what would you do with God's will for your life if you knew it? Never answer, it depends. Never answer, it depends. Because it ought not to depend on anything except obedience. And surrender. Surrender. So let's go back to our chapter. Cornelius, this Gentile convert to Judaism, a devout man, has a vision in which the angel of God said to him, send for Peter to come to you. But as I mentioned, in verses 9 to 22, we find out that there was a second vision, and it was a vision to the apostle Peter. And we're going to read verses 9 through 22 of our chapter to see about this particular vision as well. I begin reading at verse 9 through 13. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down 
to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, verse 13. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Have you ever noticed that the Lord so often breaks through to you in various points of your need or in various points of your desires? That's what's happening here. The Lord is breaking through to his apostle Peter at the point of his need for food. I have all kinds of examples that come to my mind when I think of the scriptures when God breaks through to persons based on their need at the moment or based at their desire at a time. Jonah was sent a great fish as a lifeboat. Ruth was sent a landowner who would let her glean in his field before he took her to be his wife. The Samaritan woman at the well was sent the one who is living water. The Ethiopian official was sent a human Old Testament commentary when he had questions about reading the prophet Isaiah from his royal chariot. The two men walking on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion were sent the one who they didn't know that one's whereabouts. God so often breaks into lives at certain points when those lives have certain needs or when those lives have certain desires and wants. I go on. The Egyptians were sent plagues to cause their pharaoh to stop denying the God of the Jews. The supervising soldier at the Lord Jesus' crucifixion was sent an earthquake and night darkness in the daytime and resurrected persons out of the Jerusalem cemetery to convince him that the Lord Jesus Christ was no less than God. And here in our passage, by way of a trance, a hungry apostle Peter was sent a sheet full of meat on the hoof. Often, our Lord breaks through to us by sending us who or what we need or who or what we desire. If I opened it up to testimonies, if we had a lemonade or a Coca-Cola together individually and I asked you, how have you seen God break into your life when you were at a certain point of need? How have you seen God break into your life when you were desiring or wanting certain things? There were many wonderful testimonies that I would hear. But for Peter, back then, what he needed was a bigger view of God's love and a bigger view of the scope of God's salvation. Peter needed to learn that repentant Gentiles were also to be included in God's church. Peter needed to be corrected that God's salvation was grace By the way, it remains pure grace, does it not? God's salvation is grace, and as grace, God's salvation is unmerited favor, unrelated to keeping the Mosaic law, including its dietary prohibitions. I just wonder, I just wonder, could there be 
corrections that we need to obey in our theology, in our presuppositions, in our looking at lost people, at our looking at each other. I just wonder, would there be any corrections which we need to obey the Lord in? Maybe corrections about the bigness of our God. Maybe corrections about the scope of God's grace. Maybe corrections about needing, we think, to mix law with grace for our sanctification. In verse 18, we see that Peter was called to correct something, and in the verse says it was like a removal of scales from his eyes, might we say spiritual cataracts, that the apostle Peter, for all of his great sermons recorded earlier for us in the book of Acts, for all of his wonderful preaching, for all of his wonderful miraculous deeds that he did in the power of the risen Christ, this wonderful apostle Peter, at this juncture at least, had spiritual Cataracts that needed to be removed. Verse 18. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Peter had spiritual cataracts. So let's pick it up at verse 14. But Peter said, not not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Verse 18. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And so I asked myself, Pastor Rob, I asked myself, Rob, do you have any spiritual cataracts? I'd invite you to ask yourself the same question. Do I have any spiritual cataracts? cataracts, any prejudices, any preconceptions, any assumptions that make our God too small and his salvation too narrow. I'll leave that between me and the Lord to sort out for me and between you all and the Lord to sort out for all of you. And God had to tell Peter three times to correct. (laughs) Let's not make our Lord tell us three times that we need to correct. Let's be corrected the first time we hear what he's saying to us in this passage. And so we have a big God and we have a big salvation. May we be vocal May we be sacrificial. May we be active in sharing the love of God for persons not yet into a relationship with God by faith. May this church be characterized by people who have the love of God in our hearts for him on Sunday mornings in worship and always. Love for one another in our small groups as they commence again in the fall and love for the lost. May people without Jesus Christ have no reason to wonder if any one of us 
loves them. May they know because of our time spent with them, our help given to them, our attention given to their thoughts, may they know that we love them with the love of God because they will respond to the love of God in the Son of God, through the cross of God, through the empty tomb of God, as we, the people of God, love them with Christ's love. May it be so, Lord. May it be so. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for being so big, big as your grace, as big as your plan and scope of salvation. Oh, Lord, we confess a sin when we have made you too small in our minds and our hearts. We admit a sin when we have narrowed your willingness to save certain sinners that we, in a sinful way, don't like. Oh, forgive us. When we have written off certain lost persons as being beyond Jesus' cross and empty tomb, we confess that sin. Please, Lord, break through and minister to these precious individuals at the very points of their needs or their wants. And Lord, please use us in the breakthrough as you would wish and plan. Lord, you are the great physician. And if any of us, the man in the pulpit or anyone listening to this sermon, if any of us have spiritual cataracts, Lord, do eye surgery, spiritual eye surgery on us, please. We want to see properly. We want to see biblically. Help us to be easily corrected morning by morning as we spend time in your word. Help us to be quick learners, humble students, quick to repent followers of Christ. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in your sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And so increase our trust and increase our obey. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen.